Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. And if you have not yet subscribed, please do so. It is free, and we would love for you to be part of our community. You can subscribe through your favorite podcast app, such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or even through our website at www.culinaryschoolstories.com. So now I'd like to introduce today's guest. He is a chef, a wine and spirits expert, and an adjunct lecturer at the university level. And this is just some of the topics we're going to talk about today. So now I'd like to introduce and welcome today's guest, Chris Strzok. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Colin. Very happy to be here. So let's start at the beginning. You know, I think you was reading your bio. You started in culinary. You morphed into more of the front of the house, wine, spirits. So let's go way back. You, you're in, I guess, high school, school, you find the love of food, and then you transition into culinary school. Tell us how that evolved. I, I started, uh, began my career sort of backwards. Um, I have always loved writing almost as much as I loved cooking. And uh, when I was 12, uh, I was sitting in my mother's car in the middle of the summer in Northwest Florida, where I'm from. And uh, it was very hot. And she had run in the pharmacy for something. And I had the wild hair to contact the local newspaper using 411, something I later got um, monished for, uh, and asked to speak to the, the editor of the food section. I had been a, a reader and a, a fan of our local paper's food section for as long as I could remember. I used to cook recipes out of it with my grandparents when I was growing up. Uh, and I reached out, got through to the, I didn't even know the name of this person when I called and I, I asked the, <laughs> or the operator, um, you know, to transfer me to the, the food editor. And when I got the person on the line, I said, hi, my name is Chris Strzok. I'm, you know, 12 years old and I'm interested in writing a food column for you. I think that your <laughs> food section is very good, but could use a teenager's touch. And, uh, Did they think it was a joke or they were getting punked or something? Yeah, I, yeah we, we, we remain friends to this day. Uh, he's just recently retired from, from uh, media, but um, I, I think he did. I think initially his first reaction was that someone in the newsroom had put somebody up to this. <laughs> and uh, I, so it like sank in and we chatted a bit more and said, do you, your parents know you're calling? And I lied and said, yes. And he said, okay, well, I'm intrigued. All right. I, you need to send me a writing sample. And then if I like, what I see, we can go from there. We need to have a meeting with your parents and get them to sign some paperwork. And um, six months later, I, I published my first column under the moniker, The Food Dude, and uh, wrote that for five years throughout high school. Uh, it's published once a month. And I would generally create an original recipe that I would test and do a little bit of editorial. Sometimes I would do things like uh, interview chefs. I had the opportunity to interview Art Smith. And uh, in fact, one of my last celebrity chef interviews was with a chef named Tim Crehan, who's very well known and, and um, uh, lauded throughout North Florida and parts of Louisiana. 
And uh, I asked him as my last interview question, how young do you hire? I was 13 and it would not have been legal. I don't think to employ me in his <laughs> kitchen at 13 in Florida at the time. And it was more of a joke. I was being, you know, I'm, I'm a smart ass and that's, that's how I operate. And he said, do, do you want a job? And uh, I was just sort of flabbergasted. And I, I said, well, I was, uh, are you hiring? And he said, doesn't matter. Do you want a job? <laughs> and that, that was definitively the first moment in my life where I said, yes, chef. Um, and my get home from this interview, my, my aunt had picked me up and dropped me off. And I, I go into the kitchen and my mother said, how did it go? How'd the interview go? And I said, it went great. I got a job. And she said, it wasn't a job interview. I said, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. But when someone offers you a job in their restaurant and they're pretty well-known chef, you just take the opportunity. And and I can plot where I'm at today from from that first, you know, uh, food column job. So it's it's kind of cool to see the way that this person introduced you to this person, and then you do a stage for them, or you you know you work for them for several years, and then you meet this person, and your career sort of uh, flourished as a result of this. Sure. So you did your due diligence with this uh, editor's job, but then you had to go back and get permission from mom and dad. What did they say when you when you asked them, or you told them, or you, you how did that go? Uh, my, my parents have always been loving and supportive of, of almost everything I've done. They've always, you know, I, I am very much an opportunist and I, and I seize every opportunity. And uh, that has largely been what I can ascribe to, to my professional and personal success thus far. But I sometimes will say yes, regardless of whether it's feasible or uh, whether it's financially <laughs> viable, which is why like, I did a, st a study abroad when I was at Johnson & Wales in Germany. And I, uh, I remember talking to my father about it and he said, it's not, uh, it's not a good idea. It's too expensive. And I said, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And he said, son, you've been, you've been using that line on me for the last 10 years. He said, well, <laughs> how often do I do something again? So uh, ultimately I made, made it work. And um, I also, since college, have worked three jobs at any given time. And that's pretty much prior to COVID has been the case in my life. So mm -hmm. um you figure it out. If the opportunity presents itself, you figure out a way to, to, uh, to latch on. But mom and dad are generally supportive. They would drive me to and from work. Uh, and that second year that I worked for this chef, uh, we were opening a new restaurant on New Year's Eve, if you can imagine what the insanity behind that idea would have been. But wow. big gala, lots of like local celebrities and very swanky. And I, uh, I cut off the tip of my thumb uh, fabricating pineapple. I don't know. I mean, it's something stupid. And I love, I love that it doesn't matter how long you, you cook professionally or personally, it's very humbling. You can still cut yourself and burn yourself. It doesn't matter how seasoned you are. Right. You know that. Yep. Uh, and I cut off the tip of my thumb around 8 PM, right. Not a good time on New Year's Eve during an opening to, to start bleeding all over memes. <laughs> and, uh, and the, I wanted to keep working. And the, the corporate chef said, absolutely not. You get your liability. You're going to bleed everywhere. You might pass out. We have, we have enough problems on our hands. Call your parents, go home. Or actually call your parents, tell them to take you to the hospital. And, uh, and I did. And my dad, I remember my, my dad, as soon as I got in the car said, oh, you're going to be okay. And you know what? I'm happy because I'm, I'm happy for you because you, you injured yourself before midnight and we've met our, our deductible for the year. So this isn't going to cost <laughs> anything. And I learned that day that there's something called skin glue and they didn't, they, I didn't, I, I'm not a huge fan of needles and they, um, they, instead of um, stitches, they, they just glued the skin back on the tip of my finger. It's a scar I still have today. And I begged my parents to drive me back to work so that I could keep working. And I snuck into the restaurant and sort of like, 
found one of the sous chefs who may have not known that I had been dismissed for the evening and said, okay, what can I do now? About <laughs> 20 minutes to midnight, the, the corporate chef caught me in the kitchen and said, what are you doing here? I sent you home. I said, it's fine. It's fine. You don't have to pay me. He goes, so he just, you know, uh, times were different then. He just resigned himself to let me, he said, you can't be in the kitchen. You can go change and mingle with the guests in the dining room, have some champagne, just get, get away from this workspace. You're a liability, but you can stay. Blood you for coming back. Skin glue saves the day. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if at first you, you, you don't get permitted to work, keep trying by all means necessary, but the, the, you know, the, the laws of our industry and the nature of our industry have changed so much um, yeah. from what you've read, from what you read about and, and Anthony Bourdain's accounts and, and Marco um, Pierre White's accounts. And I feel like my generation, I mean, I'm 30, was at the tail end of that. Mm. So I did see people do lines of cocaine on the line with dried penne pasta. I did have hot things thrown at me. I did hear every obscenity uh, possible directed at me. I was sometimes subject to violence, physically, uh, definitely emotionally, verbally abusive, et cetera. But that was on its way out when I was coming in. So I am thankful in a way that I, I got to prove my mettle to myself for being able to endure that, which no one should have to endure in a workplace. But uh, seeing the way the industry is going now for a lot of reasons, largely the lawsuits that have come as a result of that behavior, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's oddly wrong and nostalgic for those of, of us who started cooking when we did to say, oh yeah, the good old days, here's what we can't do anymore. And for good reason, but boy, back then, <laughs> if these kids today knew how well they had it, they wouldn't be complaining about how bad family. That's probably true of every generation, I'm right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Telling the stories. and But in restaurant years, it ages you like dog years. You know, 30 <laughs> years old, my, my mind and body is well into my 70s. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay. So you you've got your first job there at, at, when you're doing the interview and then you worked in a couple others. What got you to go to culinary school? Something you got the bug at that point? You said, I got to go to school for this or how did that happen? There was a, uh, a vocational program that was running concurrent with my high school and you could, you know, either do a traditional high school or the vocational program or, or classes in both. And mm -hmm. so I finished my senior year uh, taking the pro start uh, level one and level two through the local vocational school that was tied to my school district. And it was a feeder program from Johnson & Wales. So we had uh, a rep from Johnson & Wales come and visit our campus. Um, Bruce Osga, Dean of, of Culinary Arts at our campus, uh, came once and hosted, I think, a competition. Um, and then the, the, the scholarships that were available to me and the in-state scholarships through the state of Florida as a resident uh, just pointed all, all ways to Johnson & Wales. I had been accepted to CIA. I was considering it, but that was maybe the one, one time that I ever acquiesced to my father's financial concerns and said, you know what? And, and as my dad jokes, I'm from Destin up in the Panhandle in Florida driving. It's quite a miserable state to drive through. It's about 16 hours in a car from Key West to Perdido Key. He said, you, you picked the, the best culinary school for in-state tuitions and grants and scholarships, but still the furthest possible away from home you could possibly be. <laughs> there is some logic to that consideration as well. <laughs> long, long state. So that was great because I know they do have that Pro Start program in a lot of states and it is a good feeder program. So, you know, did you get a chance to tour the school first or not? It was just enroll and then you get there on day one. Uh, I got to go down and tour with my parents. Uh, Global Master Chef Chris, Chris, uh, Wagner gave us our tour, which really cemented the the the, uh, 
the good decision to pursue JWU and really interested with the industry partnerships that the school had at that time and uh, the way the class was structured. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Florida really ought to be two different states in terms of the culture and the ideology and oh, yeah. being from the panhandle, uh, which is more deep south, and then moving to, to North Miami Beach. It's just such, it was such a culturally rich opportunity for me that I recognized it wasn't just what I was going to learn in the classroom, but what I was going to learn a, among a wider peer group and, and in a new market. So mm-hmm. I'm very, very glad I made that, that choice. Yeah, it is definitely diverse there and, you know, almost tropical in, in Caribbean and you, know, you get all the different groups that are there and the food and the cultures. Um, so tell us about day one. So after you signed up, you got it. Did you live in the dorms? I'm imagining you get your knife kit, you're signing up for labs, kind of take us what you're going on in your mind. So if someone is listening and thinking about culinary school, what's what's happening? I might, I might get a little too specific for, for, for an audience that might end up listening to this, but uh, I did stay on campus first term, Mingo Hall, because I'm, in, I'm not a morning person and I recognize some of the labs were early and I liked the idea of literally rolling out of bed, hopping in your starch chef whites and, and, and running downstairs for your lab. That was the appeal of Flamingo Hall. It was in the same building as our labs, uh, which I did on a regular basis. And my first Johnson & Wales class, which happened to be a lab, was Drew Brandenburg's uh, Soup Stocks and Sauces. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, that'll be hilarious to anyone that ever has met Drew Brandenburg, worked with him, worked for him, or, or uh, taken any of his classes. Uh, it, was, uh, it was amusing, uh, and I did learn a lot. He was a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I, I, sometimes a lot of what my past chefs, both in culinary school and in, in the workforce, have taught me is often what not to do or how not to do it. So I think that there's educational benefit. You can you don't throw the good out with the bad. Sometimes you can learn practical skills, and sometimes you can learn practically how not to pursue something. Um, and it, it was great because a lot of times in the workplace, your sous chef that's trying to teach you how to build a stock or something may not have the time to do it as well as you can do it in a classroom. So even though I had what I felt was a solid foundation. Um, it was ni- it's always nice to revisit the basics. It never hurts. It doesn't matter where in your career you're at, what age you're at. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask you, Colin, you've been a chef for a lot longer than I've, I've been a chef or alive. And when's the last time you made a bechamel? I actually made one not that long because I didn't have any heavy cream. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but I need to make some okay, Alfredo right. for my son. And I didn't have any heavy cream to do a reduction and stuff. So I actually thickened some milk really quick. I, I didn't do the you know onion PK and all the bay leaves. I did a quick version, but then I thickened it with cheese. So, but before that, it had been years. <laughs> right, exactly. But you, I mean, you could you could relearn how to do it a la minute. But it it it's uh, in terms of just like you know applying the philosophical. It's uh, it, it never hurts mm. to keep those those motor skills well well greased. So. Um, I really benefited from that class and it is a foundational course for freshman curriculum. I, I think even still now, and it's, it's great because everything is built off of that mm-hmm. composed dishes and other sauces and, um, you know, uh, full courses. And, uh, I also had him for advanced garde manger in the, in the four-year culinary program. I, I elbowed my way into that. I was the last person admitted and, uh, was able to take some classes before some prerequisites to get me to finish with the, the cohort. But, um, that was incredibly valuable. It just was very, it's the best uh, incubator for what a real mm-hmm. catering operation would look like in an academic classroom. Now, you brought up a good point, interesting, that I don't think I've 
addressed on this show before is how is it when you bring in experience to culinary school because a lot of them come right out of high school and i've had guests on here before that had no experience they walked in and it was like whoa first time in a commercial kitchen you know and as an instructor you know that's a certain way that you might address those students but then you bring in students that like myself, when I went to culinary school, I'd already been a chef and I went there just for the piece of paper to get, you know, some credibility thinking I already knew everything, which I didn't. Another story. But how is it when you go in there, yourself included, having all this knowledge and then you're going through some basic fundamental remedial type learning? And uh, how is that for your mindset? Uh, well, you'll go one of two ways. Uh, it... it um you can approach it humbly and use what you know to help out students in the class that may have never held a knife properly before. Mm -hmm. Or you could do it the way that I did it and just lord <laughs> your knowledge over your classmates and try to use it to, you know, uh, appear more erudite and, and <laughs> overconfident to get you dates. Um, and I, I remember that same chef that gave my parents and I the tour, Chris Wagner, right? Uh, someone that I, as a student, immensely respected, global master chef, right? Very, very talented cook. Uh, and very smart person. And when I was a senior, one of the last times I saw him before graduating, he, uh, he said, you know, you really remind me of myself when I was your age. And I was just, my heart just welled up because when your mentor tells you that you're just like, wow, I'm on the right path. That means a great deal coming from you. And he took a beat and then finished the thought. He said, you're a real arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> and, uh, and that, that's, that will stay with me forever. So um, I, I would say that regardless of what you know, you may not know everything perfectly. And the more humble you are, the less likely you are to eat crow and to, uh, to be made a fool. So um, that said, to your exact question, I mean, it, it did allow me to sort of uh, organically find friends that had similar backgrounds and skill sets uh, in the freshman cohort. And um, mm -hmm. some of my closest friends today were as a result of that. It's like people that like, okay we don't need to be shown how to Brunois six times. We got it. We're just going to keep doing it over here. And we can sort of talk about other food stuff that are interesting while we're doing this Mies work while the other people are a little bit more re remedial. And there was no like judgment there. It was just, it is what it is. Um, and honestly, it, it sort of puts you at an advantage for opportunities because Drew Brandenburg was a great example of an instructor who had a business outside of the classroom where he would look at students that he had and said, okay, this person has potential or knows something or is trustworthy, et cetera, and extend a job offer to them. And so my first job in college was as an apprentice ice sculptor uh, for the Miami Iceman. And boy, uh, you didn't need a whole nother podcast for me to convey some of the story of that work experience. But it, it is pretty cool to come home on, you know, Christmas break or holiday break and say, yeah, yeah, I got this new job sculpting ice for money. And what you know right. it's uh it's a lost art for sure but it was it was neat to be able to to hone those skills when i when i was so you were there for four years you got your two-year associate and then you got a four-year bachelor's degree and uh out of all that did you have a favorite class favorite classes did you have ones that were the worst is there any classes you wish you had that you didn't have that were missing in the you know the program or the curriculum i really it was really uh personally heart-wrenching for me to see the end of the C4 program. Uh, so at Johnson & Wales, there was a four-year culinary program. As I said, I sort of slid into, even though I was past the cutoff class for admission. Um, and then there was a, there's a food service management 
uh, degree with a four-year degree with uh, co- concentrations that you could, and, and one of my concentrations was beverage service management and sommelier studies. Um, but so I actually got two bachelor's degrees during my four years there because I had some credits from Votech that transferred over and some AP credits. Um, I, of the, of the advanced level, the senior level P4 class, I think that the, um, the class that we did with, um, with Brandenburg, the, the advanced Garmage class was super valuable. A lot of that is dated and a very specific skill sets, um, you know, like working with aspect that aren't commonly used today. But just the exposure and then the expectation that once exposed and with practice in a very short term time, I mean, you're, it, as I said earlier, it emulates real life because we were meeting outside of class overnight to prepare things that were due the next day. And it's such an intensive course that, that this is how real life works. Sometimes you have to pull all-nighters, even as adults, when you're not students to make your business succeed. Mm-hmm. And that was a great lesson in that um, the... Um, culinary operations class that Chris Wagner taught, which sort of touched on kitchen design and basic uh, appliance, kitchen appliance, troubleshooting and uh, sustainability, I thought was great because it was very much a forum. Mm-hmm. While we did have to design our own kitchen and do the, the drawings, uh, the CAD drawings uh, for architectural design for a kitchen, we also t- spoke about environmental sustainability and things that may have been buzzwords at the time, but no, no educator had ever given us a platform to discuss them. Mm-hmm. And because great, everyone can be pro environment. Of course, we all live in the same environment in this world, but what are the, what are the business implications to that? And, and how, who are the stakeholders and how do you get people talking and, and actually doing? So that was very advantageous. How do you implement those things? Right. Yeah. It's everything's easy around a boardroom table, but then what does that look like in practicality? So, uh, in terms of, yeah, it was just sad to see some of those classes go by the wayside when they ended that program. I, I saw a lot of benefit to those classes. Um, and then Brian Connors uh, basically did the same program for food service management uh, in a class where you're executing um, a restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, in real life, not so much the back of house that Chris Wagner was doing, but you you do a catering operation in a restaurant of your design and your choosing and you do the publicity for it and everything. And that there are TV shows that have been made about this premise at this point where it's like, here, you have a week to open a restaurant, go. And that was basically the, the course objective in that class. And it was such a challenge. I mean, Pete, you know, tears and blood and sweat. And, and actually we, you, we were given somewhat free reign and a budget far too small because, you know, educational budgets. Yep. Uh, but uh, we ended up supplementing our budget out of our own pockets because we wanted to do a, a Harry Potter themed event and it ended up getting covered by the Miami Herald and it was a lot of fun. And we, you know, culinary, um, uh, molecular gastronomy was in vogue at the time. And it was a team of, of myself and Louise Young and, and a couple other people that we respected and worked well with. And, and we, we were very proud of what we, we did, but it was definitely those classes that either teach you the fundamentals or best emulate what you're going to be experiencing in the workforce are, are the most valuable to me. Yes. Um, so where did your love of this beverage come? You didn't bring it into school with you, but you left with it and it's now the main part of your career. Where did that transition happen and how did it happen? I came in not so much with a love of studying uh, alcoholic beverages, but I certainly came to college with a healthy love of alcoholic beverages. And <laughs> my, my grandmother is uh, French, she was born in France. And so you know, wine had a place at our table, perhaps more regularly than a lot of other homes in the South at the time. 
And uh, my parents used to love to entertain. They had they used to have very big parties where they would provide alcohol and then people would bring it. And, and eventually they amassed like two wine racks full of wine. And sometime in high school, my best friend and I would wait till they'd go to bed and parse. We would very strategically pull bottles so as to appear to just thin it out without ever raising suspect. Um, <laughs> and I, I have to, I never brought this up to them, but I've, I've, I've got to wonder if, my parents ever saw the light on in our room and, you know, discovered some cork bits or uh, someplace in the house that they must've thought that, that my best friend and I were lovers or something because we would <laughs> lock the door and like turn the lights down and be very quiet. But there would always be, you know, wine glasses that needed to be washed the next day. So I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, but, but we would, during that time, we would sit in bed and just like read back labels and smell the wine and taste the wine and compare what we were smelling and tasting to what was written on the back label. And it, and it's funny, I, I sent that same chef, the first chef that hired me, I sent him an email a few years ago because it dawned on me as a cook, I became really interested in wine. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, drinking it, not studying it yet. So I would pay cash to the servers that worked at that restaurant who would go and buy me bottles of wine to taste because I was underage. Didn't dawn on me until about three years ago that they were stealing bottles from the restaurant to sell to me. <laughs> it's a win-win for everybody. And so I emailed, it really, I said, hey, Tim, I, honest to God, never suspected this was going on. But I imagine given what was on the wine list at the time and what I was being uh, provided by the servers that they were pocketing the cash and just stealing from the seller. And I'm very sorry. It was never my intention, but, um, but yeah, so I, I came to culinary school, like most other people do wanting to be a chef. Uh, I had already gone through the pain of closing a restaurant that filed for bankruptcy that belonged to someone else. So I, I had learned early on that I didn't necessarily need or want to own my own place. There's not to me, a lot of um, sense to that financially. It's better to be known as the chef of a place that someone else owns. And if things beyond your control take the business away from you, you don't have to walk away from that financially setback. Um, but Yves Peridot, uh, a French dining room instructor and wine instructor at Johnson & Wales, uh, resonated with my pragmatic brain and said, look, all of you want to be chefs. Yes, raise your hand. And 95% of the room raised their hands. Great. You want to be chefs that make money, right? And have businesses that are profitable. Raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand. Said, okay, let me just lay out the math for you. I'm not here to change your mind, but take this <laughs> the way you will. Food, you can mark up, what, 30%, something like that, right? And it's incredibly perishable. So you only have a couple of days to sell it. Yes? Yes, everyone agreed. Wine, beer, tea, coffee, spirits, virtually non-perishable. You can mark them up two to 400%. Uh, and... That is where you're, the money that's going to uh, provide your restaurant's sustenance is going to come from. And it's best you know something about it, even if you just want to continue pursuing cooking professionally. And that, you know, between having worked in restaurants for years at that point and, and knowing that when you're working, you're chained to a stove. And all my friends were on the beach all summer. And I was looking out the kitchen window <laughs> at my friends on the beach while, you know, in 120 degrees when, when the hoods would go. Uh, so it, it requires a certain degree of dedication, but I also saw that it wasn't sustainable. And I was working at a young age with people two or three times my age who hadn't saved for retirement, mm -hmm. had no prospects, didn't want to bother with management and were stuck in these line cook jobs in their fifties and sixties. And they couldn't, they, they weren't healthy enough to do the job, but they couldn't afford to stop working. So it began percolating of how can I travel the world? My father also wanted me to join the military at the time. And he said, the only way that you're going to live this lavish lifestyle that you want to live and 
and travel around the world and get someone else to pay for it is join the military. And every son wants to prove his father wrong. So <laughs> I got into wine where I get to go on wine trips and travel the world on someone else's dime. And drink, drink wine. Drink and eat well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it was after that class that I started saying, oh, wine is a career, right? Because you can't go to your, your high school guidance counselor and say, I'd like to be a sommelier. That'll definitely get some phone call made to, to the local government on your parents. <laughs> but um, but it, giving that license of me to say, you don't have to cook. You can keep cooking. You can still love to cook. And, and throughout my time at Johnson & Wales, I continued cooking in professional capacities while trying to get my foot in the door and learn about wine. And uh, the first person that I knew that lived in New York that was in the wine business is someone that I actually met at a wine tasting on campus when I was a student. Hmm. Okay, so you got your love of, you know, wine and spirits in school. Where did that take you? What was the career path once you got out of school? So I graduated in May. I went home to uh, live rent-free with my parents, as many do after they graduate. It's a growing trend, I understand. Uh, and I worked as hard as possible during that summer to save money for what I wanted to do, which was move to New York. Uh, my internship at Johnson and Wales was a craft restaurant under Tom Colicchio. And having never visited New York city before I fell in love with it in the three months that I, I lived and worked here. Um, and it was expensive. It was just before the law changed in New York state that said you had to pay your, your, uh, your volunteer help. I was like in the last group of Johnson and Wales students that worked for free in one of the most expensive markets in the country. Um, but I learned a lot and I was very grateful for my time. And um, uh, in fact, it was working with a chef in Miami that allowed me to get my foot in the door with Kraft and, and do the stage there for three months. But um, I realized I wanted to move back to New York. I was a big city guy. I loved living in Miami. I wanted to move to New York as soon as I was able. Uh, but I also wanted to get some experience in the harvest of, of grapes, right? That's foundational your understanding of wine is to actually see it made and, and be in the vineyards. And so I, I wanted to do that, but leaving an apartment, an expensive apartment in New York to go to harvest for a few months, I also recognized in the future wouldn't be practical, you know, add a, add a mortgage and kids and a, and a partner to that. And who knows if I would ever be able to take that opportunity. So uh, consistent with my younger self told myself, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and said the same thing to my father and uh, decided to head to Europe for, for the harvest that fall. So I, I went home for the summer after graduating, worked very hard, saved some money, went to Europe for, I think, two and a half months, uh, did a little bit of harvest. It was a tricky vintage. So I did a little bit of harvest work in Italy and in France uh, between four different producers. One of them, I sort of earned my keep by cooking in the kitchen uh, on days that it was too rainy or muddy, et cetera, to, to do anything in the vineyard. So it was neat to get to flex back and forth there. Uh, and then returned, stayed home for the holidays, and then in the middle of winter, moved to New York City uh, a little over eight years ago at this point. And even though I had been given some wonderful advice from the president of, of our campus at the time, Lorene Chant, uh, during uh, a listening session that we had together, she said, I just want to remind you, it's a lot of great information you're giving me, but we were given one mouth and two ears for the express purpose that we speak half as much as we listen. And that was, that was the first time I heard that, but it's, it's stayed with me since. Um, and that said, I still came to New York with a certain degree of arrogance of not only have I been to culinary school, right? Everyone thinks they can go to culinary school and then get a, a TV chef gig. It's highly improbable. Um, but I also have now five plus years of practical culinary experience, mm -hmm. but I don't want to cook. You can get a cook job in New York City very uh, easily. Restaurants are desperate for cooks here. When it comes to getting into wine, where do I begin? I didn't have any practical wine experience. I had worked at Total Wine and More in, in North Miami for six months, but 
that wasn't particularly attractive to a, a restaurant looking to hire a wine help. And I also couldn't afford to work as an intern anymore and make minimum wage if that. So I, I went through a very long, cold, tough couple of months when I moved to New York, pursuing a lot of leads, but all of them coming up short. Mm. Um, I listened to The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel for quite a bit because I would like glance out my window and it was it was 10 degrees outside and 40 degrees in my apartment. And I was, I had applied to my hundredth job and sent my hundredth cover letter and it was super depressing, but I was like, well, <laughs> this is the New York experience that you read about. I'm doing it. I'm living it. I'm here. And my first job was not explicitly in beverage here, but my first front of house job in New York was working for a company called OTG management who manages uh, airport concessions and restaurants throughout North America. And it was a college a uh, roommate's friend, when I did some uh, time at the Providence campus, um, who knew the son of the CEO, right? It's, it's largely about who you know. It helps what you know. But beyond that, it's who you know. And uh, so I, I managed restaurants in, at JFK Airport for 50 weeks. I couldn't stick it out a full year. I, I was always told, don't work a job less than a year. It looks bad on your resume. I was a manager. Well, throw in two weeks vacation and you did it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I, as many do every year, they do a, a management conference uh, between Vegas and the Bahamas. They alternate every year. And so once the company had sent me to the Bahamas and I came back myself and, you know, the normal few, few people that give their notice then gave their notice. And it, it's just every miserable thing, you know, from running restaurants in a four wall brick and mortar, normal restaurant location, the terrible hours, the trouble finding help, the X, Y, Z is exacerbated in an airport mm. because you, and, and that was the year that, that New York had more major snowstorms than I think in the last 60. Uh, and so you are contractually obligated to keep your units open when the whole city is shut down because there are stranded passengers in the airport that need to eat and buy sure. need food, need drink. Right. And just like, you know, COVID has been a boon for Amazon. So too are snowstorms a boon for the airlines because that's a literally a captive audience. But how do you get staff to staff those units or product to those units and still hit budget when the public transit is down? You can't expect your staff who's making minimum wage to get in a cab and come to work at the airport. Mm -hmm. So there were a few moment, a few you know, few instances where I drove my boss's uh, truck to pick up hourly staff at their homes and bring them to the airport. It, I mean, I've slept at the airport. It was Wow. It aged me quite a bit. And uh, so and now anytime I have to do something like, oh, there's raw sewage coming out of one of the, the cellar drains, uh, I have to mop it up. It's like, yeah, it's not that it's not the best way to start a shift, but it's a whole lot better than sleeping in an airport. Uh, so I, you know, like I so said, when you tra when you travel now and you go through airports, do you, do you have compassion for those the people that are there at work? Oh, Absolutely. You know, and COVID has me working one day a week at a, a wine warehouse for a retailer here in New York and uh, logistics involved. Like you don't just order a bottle of wine on the internet and it shows up at your door. There's so many moving pieces. And I think the more uh, people work in the service industry and the hospitality industry, the more empathetic they become. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of mandatory compulsory military service, but I think that every person in this country would do well to work in restaurants for a year or three. It would make society a whole much better. Yeah, true. Good point. Okay, I'm going to take a quick pause right now and ask you, the listener of this episode, to sign up for our newsletter and mailing list. I left a link in the description, or maybe even easier, just to go to www.chefroach.com slash contact. That's Chef Roach, 
all one word, dot com slash contact. Then just go to the bottom of the page and sign up for our newsletter. It's free. Then once you're signed up, you'll never miss out on our latest news, announcements, episodes, contests, course information, or exclusive deals. So go ahead, sign up so you can get all the information and more through the periodic email updates. And don't worry, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. The link again is www.chefroach.com slash contact. So go ahead, do it now. We want you to be part of our community. And if you don't do it now, you'll probably just forget by the time this episode is over. So just hit the pause button right now and take the 15 to 20 seconds to get it done and then come back and hit play. We'll wait for you, I promise. Okay, hopefully you just did it or you've already done it in the past or at the very least, you'll be doing it very soon. Your support of the show and the network is very important to us, and we thank you in advance. All righty, so now back to the show. So you got you got out of the airports. Where did you go next? Uh, well, I had a social media really has evolved and, and it's snowballed in its evolution, right? It, it keeps evolving faster and faster and faster, and there's all these new platforms and um I was still on Facebook at the time, hadn't trans- transitioned to Instagram yet. Uh, I think it was on Twitter too. And one of the odd secrets to my early success in building a network in New York City was to, with reckless abandon, start friend requesting people that I treated Facebook like LinkedIn. I don't think LinkedIn is very well optimized for people in restaurants and hospitality, mm-hmm. but I treated Facebook as this is only me professionally. I'm only going to post professional photos and, and work stuff on here. This is my LinkedIn. This is my profile. This is how I want to present myself dynamically to the world beyond just a resume. And so I would look up some of these people with organizations, be they restaurants or retailers or wholesalers that I, I would want to do business with, maybe work for, and start friend requesting people that were in charge, either at the managerial level or the ownership level or both. And you know, once you have a critical mass of friends in common, even if someone's never met you, they're likely to add you or to accept your friend requests if you have 100 friends in common. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't be that bad a person. These other people have vouched for you. You're not a total stranger. And so I, that's what I did. And I, I, there were a few times where people blocked me, probably thought I was a lunatic. Um, but Stalker. I, right, exactly. But I, I would, and you would learn about your industry in the markets uh, of the people that were represented there. Cause most other people like you talk about work more than anything. Sure. And there was a importer of a wonderful spirits book. One of the best spirits importers in the country, even to this day called PM spirits, Nicholas Palazzi. And I really loved his posts and it, it sounds very fanboyish to, to say, Hey, I really love your posts on social media. We've never met. Can we grab coffee? But I put myself out there and I lucked out in that he was a kind of person that understood We've all been, most of us have been new kids to New York City at some point, and giving someone the courtesy of a cup of coffee is the least that we can do to someone trying to navigate this very scary place. And I have paid that forward now as well. Anytime someone refers me to uh, someone who's just moved here, planning to move here, has questions about anything, I try to make a point to prioritize speaking to them or seeing them and helping them out. It's just a nice way to pay that forward. And that's great. Nicholas met me for a coffee and he had a, a spirits tasting after that at a restaurant and said, Hey, you seem like a cool guy. This was great chatting. And I, I had still hadn't found a job or I, I was planning to leave the airport desperately. 
uh, but I didn't have anywhere to leave it for. And I asked him, I said, look, I, I know I just met you, but if you know of anyone hiring, this is sort of what I'm interested in. I don't have a lot of wine experience, but I love wine and I really want to learn more. And as it happened, he had just started talking to another French person who was opening a restaurant in New York called Racine and uh, was looking for kind of a number two. And I ended up getting that job after a few months of talking and interviewing things. And that, that ended up being one of the most famous places in New York City of its time. It still exists today, thankfully, um, to, to, to drink wine. And I just would have never guessed that, had never heard of the Racine in Paris. It's been around, there were two of them that had been around for a long time. I had heard of them, but never been. And just getting this opportunity was just kismet. Um, and hilariously enough, and I still attribute Nicholas to the reason why I, I had the opportunity to become a sommelier at Union Square Cafe, is that the venue that was hosting his spirits tasting after our coffee that we walked to together was the original Union Square Cafe. Oh. And so like full circle, um, six years after that first meeting, I, I was hired as a sommelier at Union Square Cafe to reopen uh, Danny Meyer's new flagship location. So that was, wow. it's, it's amazing how it, your, your reputation is all you have in this business. And I, when, when I'm having those, those coffees or beers with people that move here and, and answering their questions about the city, said, be very careful. I, I say the whole two ears, one mouth thing. Be very careful about what you say about other people. But, but listen to everything that people are saying around you. Just be a sponge and keep that information to yourself and use it to your advantage professionally. And, uh, and it's been great because you never know who's worked with who that you're talking crap about mm -hmm. or who is going to work with who that you're talking crap about. The same is true of, of sleeping with people. This industry is very incestuous. And I said, if you're, you're really gambling, if you, if you sleep with someone in this business, because they could be your future boss or uh, you could be their future boss or mm -hmm. the intimate things you learn about someone when you're in a relationship with them, it, it complicates the already complicated environment. So um, yeah, I, I just sort of, a lot of my luck has been just that dumb luck. And a lot of it has been, aggressively pursuing a network all while honing the skills that I'm trying to peddle at market. That's great. It was a good strategy, reaching out and you know, networking and now it's opened a lot of doors for you. Cast a wide net. Um, so how did culinary school prepare you for the work you do today and any lessons that you got at your time at Johnson & Wales that helped you? It was as much about the, the network that I built and the out of classroom experiences that Johnson & Wales afforded to me as it was the learning that happened uh, in the classroom. Um, as we said, Miami is awesome for diversity of humans, awesome for diversity of produce. It's got some subtropical climactic zones that nowhere else in the States have, which allows for myriad of all kinds of interesting produce uh, grown you know, in and around homestead area that's, uh, that you'd never find anywhere else in this country. And that's, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, I joined onto the special functions team um, in, the, in the culinary department and they uh, sort of match students to the needs of local chefs for events, for functions, sometimes in their restaurant, for charity things, and got to visit all kinds of different places around Miami, um, oftentimes, you know, contributing hours for charitable organizations, but often getting to, to be mentored by and taught by local well-known chefs. And that, that's where I, I forged a friendship with Jeff McKinnis, who was at the time a really big chef in South Florida. And, uh, he had just, I think he'd just come off of season five of Top Chef at the time and worked one event with him, had a lot of fun. And he just ended up independently calling um, myself and my ex-girlfriend and one of our friends to just help him with catering. And that, that was extra money for us who were very strapped for money. It was the opportunity to hobnob at very uh, fancy cocktail 
parties in Miami and on South Beach and <laughs> just kind of gave you a glimpse into this luxurious life that you would never lead, but it was kind of nice being a fly on the wall or a, a body in a coat closet uh, during that time. So um, Jeff, Jeff is the one who sort of made the intro to, to Tom Colicchio and recommended me for the position at, at Kraft. So it's uh, if you just go to any university or college or culinary school to just go to class, you're leaving a lot on the table. Mm -hmm. always pursue the extracurricular opportunities because there's so much learning available to you in those, with those avenues, through those avenues. Yeah. Jeff's a great person, great chef. So isn't his wife. So good people to know. So then you got uh, another degree. You went on and got a master's degree and now you're teaching, adjuncting, passing the knowledge on. Tell us a little bit about that. What was the impetus to go get that degree and, and what brought you to teaching? The following is probably going to prohibit me from getting an emotion, uh, a, a promotion or a, uh, a job one day in higher ed. But <laughs> we have in this country created a whole industry in education. And at first glance, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. We're educating people. But we look around society today and different metrics that clearly demonstrate that while we're giving people the pieces of paper, the degrees not certain that that's commensurate with a society that's really that much more educated than we were 50 or 100 years ago. Um, but the costs associated with those diplomas, those degrees are, are enormous. And um, it's created this cycle where you have people like myself who didn't heed their father's advice and uh, went to private schools when they had no means financially to do so and, and accrued plenty of student loan debt. And in an effort to pay that off now, what is going to be one of their second jobs out of grad school? It's going to be teaching because uh, it offers a certain flexibility in your schedule. You're still able to work a full-time job independent of that. And that's a whole network and opportunity of when you're surveying the field of jobs in food and beverage that aren't in sales or you know, uh, in restaurants, um, there aren't that many. If you want to be a writer, great, but it's a hard way to make a living. If you want to be an educator, great, it's a hard way to make a living. And as you get older, I joke with people that it's always, it's a race to see whether your mind or your body will fail you first in, in restaurants. And I'm still waiting to see, but I, everyone should be working on their 10 year plan uh, at any point in this, because the industry is so tough on you emotionally, physically, mentally, that you should really have an exit strategy because you never know when you're going to tear your, tear your Achilles tendon. And then how can you be out of work at restaurants, your bread and butter for six or more months? Um, so I kind of live in this healthy sense of fear of, of failure, personal failure. And I wanted to hedge my bets. And uh, one of my mentors here in New York had, in addition to working as a wine director for many years at a restaurant called Chantrelle, um, quite famous up here for a while, it's since closed. Um, he had been teaching as an adjunct. Uh, to pick up extra money for tw almost 20 years. And I uh, reached out to him and it's a very funny, long story, but maybe too long for this. Uh, we, I ended up teaching there the following year and have been teaching every term since. So I do love educating. I've always loved that component of leadership and working in restaurants, whether it's back of house or front of house, you can't just take, 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 take all this knowledge from other people and then never dispense it onto the next group of people that are learning. So I love learning as much as I like teaching and you can often learn as you're teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the having the chutzpah to say, yes, even if you're maybe ill-prepared or don't ever feel completely prepared to teach something, figuring it out and learning as you go and teaching as you go and, and being honest and transparent. Just as I, I ask servers and sommeliers in the restaurants where I work, 
to never lie to a guest if they ask a question about a wine on a wine list. If you don't know, say, I don't know, I'm going to find out for you. The worst thing you could do for the integrity of, of me, of yourself, of this program, of this restaurant and its legacy is lie to the person that made the wine. We have celebrity winemakers, sommeliers, if you want to call them that. I know that that phrase makes people's skin crawl, but that you may not know that you're talking to the person that made the wine that they're asking you about. And uh -huh. you don't want to appear a fool or, or make us look foolish. So the same thing in education. Students ask me questions all the time that I don't know the answer to. I find out the answer for them and I bring it to class the next, next time. And I think that that, as I've gotten older, thank God, uh, I have <laughs> failed enough times to underscore the importance of humility. And I try very hard to, with any successes that come, recognize where I've come from and how much further I had to go and cut people to slack knowing that everyone's on an individual journey <laughs> in their life, uh, whether it's their educational one or their you know, philosophical one of humanity. Life is hard. We, we, we all deserve to cut each other some breaks. You talked about education there and some of the problems with higher ed and education in general. Where do you see culinary schools going in the future? I mean, now there's a lot that have closed, Cordon Bleu, Art Institutes, Johnson & Wales, Miami, Denver, uh, New England Culinary just recently announced, so there's a lot more closing. How do you see that evolving? Does it need to evolve? Does it need to change? I am not uh, informed enough about the, I used to be, about the origin story of Johnson & Wales in introducing the culinary arts into their programs um, and, and why that decision was made. But I think that the, the nature of a culinary program, educational program is already an expensive one because you have those high perishable ingredients that you have to buy to teach people technique. You don't necessarily wanna buy the highest end of ingredients either because there's a very good chance that your student is going to burn them or overcook them or you know, some way foul them up because they're learning. So um, I always wondered how my colleagues, my roommates and things that were taking other Johnson & Wales programs felt that their tuition money was, uh, they were getting the most bang for their buck because they didn't have the, the costs associated with their program, at least in my mind, that ours did. Um, and I, I don't know that universities need to be dabbling in culinary arts beyond like the academic and maybe offering a class or two in relations to a greater humanities program. I think that culinary arts schools, uh, you know, and this, this is a challenge with funding and accreditation and, and FAFSA and qualifying for federal aid and, and certain government loans. But uh, while education will never hurt someone, there are certain things like advanced math classes that don't necessarily benefit you if, you're, if your goal is to really just work in a kitchen. I mean, when I, when I pursued an MBA, again, very pragmatic. I never wanted to be the person that was pursuing a master's degree while raising a family, while working a full-time job. I had worked with plenty of these people and I thought they were out of their minds and I'm not that strong or organized a person to do that. So I sort of raced to my master's right after my bachelor's because I wanted to get it done. And I, I was recognizing that in, in, the, in the global market and, and employers are considering a master's degree to be the new bachelor's degree, which is not necessarily something I agree with. So uh, in order to be competitive, I, I recognized that I wanted to get a master's degree and I wanted to get it sooner than later. Um, so I, I think that if you'd figured out the funding component and the, and the cost to students component, that there could be some fantastic culinary programs in the state that are more vocational and less accredited through university accreditation for degree granting. I mean, we just need to change. We need to shift the paradigm in society that the expectation to be an administrative assistant is that you have a bachelor's degree. 
it, it seems very arbitrary. There is no, I've never met someone that demonstrated a, a skill set where without knowing of their, of their formal higher education, I can say, oh, based on your performance, I can tell that you have an associate's degree, or I can tell that you have a bachelor's degree even based on the way that they do math or English. It's like, you can't make that assessment based on someone's performance. Their performance alone is what demonstrates their worth as an employee. And we need to, we need to reel in this, these requirements for a bachelor's degree. This is, this is absurd. We don't need degree requirements for certain jobs. Certain jobs, fine. But many of them that I see degrees for, it's part of why I've actually, um, waiting to hear back from NYU, I've applied to a PhD program in the fall is because I'm looking at my 10-year plan and the possibility of wanting to live and work abroad. And adjuncts, the expectation is that you have a PhD now to be an adjunct, which I think is insane. But because we've started this wheel in motion and we're graduating way more credentialed people than the job market can hold, it is very much an employer's market and they can demand a doctorate if they if they want to. And, and there are plenty of people with superfluous doctorates that can therefore be put at the front of the line regardless of how well they can do the job that's advertised. And you mentioned your dad when you had those conversations about public versus private. I mean, look at NYU. I, I don't know. I think they're like $70,000 a year tuition. What about a public school or a state school or, or going to culinary school at a community college? Would that, how do you see that? Again, I, I, uh, I actually sit on a, a, an advisory committee for a community college in New Jersey uh, that has a hospitality program. And that, that is a constant conversation of, our students are this, and after our program are likely to do this, and where, and, and what will be expected of them, and what do they need to learn, and what are the, how do we weave in the, you know, maybe fun culinary courses amidst the, amidst the core courses that they have to take for the degree? Um, I, I don't have the answer to your question, unfortunately. Um, I, I do think that if I could go back and do it again, I may have not pursued culinary school as much as, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I, I, I've seen the immense value of my time at culinary school. I'm not sure if I could do it over again, that I would pursue a four year degree culinary school. Mm -hmm. I, like I said, enjoy learning. I'd probably pursue a poli sci degree or something, you know, something that didn't, didn't matter in the nature of my work. It was just a degree. I might as well study something that was really interesting to me and different from that, that I want to pursue professionally. And, you look at what most people end up doing professionally after they graduate, and very few are working in their major, um, you know, outside of, of some of the sciences. So, I uh, I do think, and I if I have children, I will be upsetting this this idea that was instilled in me in elementary school that you need to make good grades because in order to be conceit, uh, in order to be successful uh, in life personally and be regarded by society as successful. You have to do well in elementary school so that you'll you'll get into the advanced classes in middle school so that'll give you a leg up into AP and, and IB classes in high school so that you can get into a good college and then you can go to a good grad school. And then you'll get that degree, the terminal degree that will allow you to get the job where you'll make a lot of money and be able to have a vacation home and retire at 65. That farce of an American dream is not- it's the, ham the hamster wheel. Right? That's right. <laughs> and that's why you have people like myself that have to teach to make a living. And, and I mean, I'm thankful- that the thing that I do to make a living is something that I also enjoy. That's, that's a very much a privileged position to be in. Uh, but I, I want to disassociate this idea. And I, I'm thankful my younger sister is eight years younger than me. And I, I was the only one in the family that said, you don't want to go to college? Fine. What do you want to do? I, I recognize with six figures of student loan debt that not going to college may be a sound decision. Uh, so what do you want to do? How do, how do we make that happen? How do we make you a marketable professional doing what it is that interests you, if, if that's even possible? And some people, 
are content working a job that they don't like because their job is not their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I respect that as well. So uh, I just think we just need to shake generationally this idea that uh, performance in school is the be all end all of your ability to perform in life. I mean, there are plenty of examples of sure. millionaires and billionaires who didn't get advanced degrees and are doing just fine. Let's take this one step further then and talk about from the industry point of view, what are the issues that you think need addressing the most in our industry and to make it better in the hospitality, the restaurant, the hotel business? Uh, Transparency from the onset. Uh, We need more diversity in our businesses. And um, I don't necessarily advocate for diversity hiring for the purpose of, of checking a box. I think that you should still hire people that contribute value to your team, regardless of what they look like. But to say I couldn't qualify, uh, I couldn't hire people of color because none of them were qualified is very lazy. And it's something we're still hearing a lot. Of course, they're not qualified. They were disadvantaged because they were brought here on ships several hundred years ago against their will. Uh, the, the deck is stacked against uh, many people of color for many different reasons. And so I think that if we invest in these people uh, to bring them up to speed in terms of the ability to do the job that we need them to do, what they can contribute to us in terms of perspective and learning and, and different backgrounds to break up the, the homogenous nature of the way that businesses approach messaging and, and internal and external treatment of people, whether it's their customers or their, or their employees, I think that that, that is tremendously invaluable. The, or, the, the less homogenous an organization, the stronger it is. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the addressing the race disparity across every industry of hospitality and services is essential. Beyond addressing it, actually having actionable plans and demonstrating that you're doing something about it, right? I mean, how many corporations in this country, regardless of whether it's food service or not, how many businesses in this country fly the rainbow flag during Pride Month? And then the other 11 months of the year don't do or say anything to or for the queer community. It's like, you also don't want to be a hypocrite. You really have to demonstrate that you, you, you want to bring about meaningful change. And, and the benefits of doing so may not show themselves for years, but you have to play the long game in business. Um, and I, that, that was a lesson I learned in culinary school, too, in, that, in the kitchen design class. There are people that buy pieces of equipment for their restaurant kitchens, uh, a stove, that are more or less disposable. The, the, the life of this stove may be five years. If you think you're only going to be in business for five years, don't open the business. What's the, what's the virtue of that? I mean, that's a terrible, right. like, I, you know, I've never been a fan of Ikea furniture because I, I never wanted to be quite that transient. If, if anything, I mean, my, our, our apartment in Miami senior year was outfitted with exclusively with furniture and couches that we found on the street. Now, <laughs> saying that out loud as a 30-year-old uh, makes me cringe and like, wow, the fact that we didn't get fleas or something worse from those, those decisions are great, but um, invest, invest in everything that you're doing or buying, recognize its worth in the long run. Um, the second component of that, and it's related to the discussion of races, is um, the rampant sexual abuses, whether it's verbal or physical, um, that have been allowed to perpetuate in our industry. And it's not healthy, and it doesn't add any value to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that a lot of people were driven to restaurants because they, through their personalities or what they were convinced of their of their knowledge or their work ethic, didn't feel like they would ever fit in in a traditional uh, occupation, a profession, right? 
those of us that went to restaurants, again, sort of ending around the time that I started in restaurants, we were viewed as other. We were not professionals. We were unskilled labor, a phrase that also makes my skin crawl. There's no such thing as unskilled labor. Janitors are skilled laborers. If you give, a, if you give an Ivy League graduate a broom and ask them to sweep a room in, in 20 minutes, you're not nearly going to have the swept room that you would of someone that, that, that does it for a living. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that addressing um, what is wrong requires us to listen to those that are different than us. And, and it allows not just elevating women and minorities to leadership positions, but also taking their feedback and going with it. You can't just have a token person in a position and then disregard everything that they say and put them in a position where if they speak out, they're worried about losing their job Mm -hmm. and that they should be happy to have because it's unlikely that they would get that job in the first place. So I think that going back to the whole thing of two ears, one mouth, people are very tired of lip service on behalf of of politicians. Once you find yourself in a management position, it, it stops with you. You have to make a tough decision and set the culture of your organization. And to do so, if you're playing a long game, doesn't cost you anything in a culture. You know, I love The Office. I thought it was very well written and very well uh, acted, but it made it seem like any effort on, on the part of HR to make things more equitable and, and, and with censorship cut out culture. And you don't have to lose the culture of a place when you start implementing fair and equal and civil rules for operation. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that people behave on their own when they're not communicating with people that they work, you can't control, you have no business to control, but the environment that you foster in your workplace, the happiest your employees will be, which again, playing the long game, you want to keep employees as long as possible, right? It costs so much to hire and train new people. The way you do that is to set a culture where everyone is happy and comfortable and thriving. And I've seen it. It is possible. It's not just mm-hmm. something, it's not an I dream speech. It's actually something that people are doing. And I'm, I've been thankful to be a part of organizations that are, are doing it well. Now, have you seen have you seen some of those negatives that you mentioned earlier? You know, the alcohol abuse, harassment, abuse, sexual harassment change since when you first started and you were aware of those, but even before culinary school to now that you're in the restaurants, you're in the business. Have you seen that change? Is it still there? Is it going up, down? Uh, I think that more with more zero tolerance policies, you, you see it in front of you a lot less. It hasn't gone away by any means, but I think that it is more contained than it certainly than it was 10, 15 years ago. There's a lot more work to do. And I think that with a culture of, uh, of safety, not necessarily a, a pariah culture or where whistleblowing is creating this, this distrust, but uh, a culture where you understand where the chain of communication is and, and allowing someone who's been violated in any way or slighted to communicate that. And, and what I've loved seeing in these, one of the ways that people try to remedy uh, these problems compounding is a clear channel of if you experience discrimination, harassment, et cetera, you go to the supervisor. If that supervisor doesn't do anything, you keep going up. And there are organizations where the top of that chain is the CEO and here's how to reach them because that's how seriously you take it. If someone, we're all individuals, we're all human, we make mistakes, we make poor judgment calls. But you, an organization can't just shrug it off and say, well, we weren't aware of that. Your, your manager, your direct supervisor didn't report that to us. So having transparency and clear, open lines of real communication uh, is, is the only way to fix this and guarantee that we are fostering a culture of the future where we make it clear out of the gate that this is not acceptable behavior. Yeah, good points. So it's hard to predict the future, but 
Where do you see the industry or the future of this industry going forward? I mean, now we're still in the pandemic, still got COVID going on, but on the other side of it, you know, at some point it's going to, you know, emerge, come out of it. Where do you see the industry then? Where do you see it changing? Do you see it's going to be the same? What are your thoughts on that? I think that we're moving, uh, we're kind of moving backwards. I, well, I don't want to say that, but we're, we're definitely, history repeats itself. And if you look at the nature of restaurants popping up in Paris, for example, and throughout France, you know, following the end of the monarchy there. And you look at uh, how African-Americans in the United States sort of started catering, uh, very successful catering businesses um, here and, and got this idea that catering and banquets and events and offsite and onsite. I think that restaurants coupled with the damage that COVID has done and the, and the very loud lack of, of government aid that we're not receiving uh, seemingly, mm -hmm. uh, that this idea that chefs started doing a few years ago of pop-ups is going to be more norma normal than, than even four-walled brick-and-mortar restaurants because there's overhead to consider. And I'll speak in New York City, our laws allow landlords, uh, really dis disincentivize landlords from offering affordable rent to people or even having their storefronts filled at all. And you've, you've created pockets of ghost town in the city where if anybody was able to fill that, that address, it would be corporate America. And when corporate America says, no, nah, this isn't worth it anymore, then no one else is behind it because they've set the bar for what rent the landlord can fetch. So what is the virtue of a restaurant with the same chef and the consistency? Well, I come from the Danny Meyer school a little bit where I do recognize the familiarity of a neighborhood place, even if it's an international destination where people come and they are they're looking at the Maslow, Maslow hierarchy of needs, their needs are met because they want a warm bowl of pasta and a friendly smile and just to be treated civilly in a city, in a country where civility seems to be a thing of the past. Um, mm. So I, I do recognize that hospitality is going to be more and more important than the transactional nature that restaurants have gotten to. I think that has come to a head and the value of hospitality. And I think you'll see it in customer service as well. Companies that are reinvesting in people to man phone banks where you can call American Express and speak to a human in a reasonable amount of time. That is going to be the differenti differentiator between you going with that business and another business because you're a human being that wants their problem resolved by another human being. Mm. You don't want to navigate a phone dialing system. You don't want to be on hold for an hour. And taking that and, and, and injecting hospitality again into what could be very transactional with pop-ups is going to be the thing that gives sommeliers, general managers, wine directors, uh, chefs, their staying power in a, in a culture. And what that does to the accolades, the James Beards Awards, the Michelin stars, it's definitely going to, they, they really should be reimagining and rethinking how they uh, outline the criteria for these awards. But mm -hmm. um, people have short attention spans. And if you can get that same hospitality and occasionally some favorite dishes that you crave from an institution, it doesn't matter if that institution resides in one address seven days a week, 365 days a year. So I think that we're about to become more transient, but those that will make that shift well are going to be those that underscore the importance of hospitality. I agree. I think customer service is so important and it's been on the decline. I mean, all business and not just hospitality. I see it you know, when I go as a customer to give my money to someone and the customer service is, I don't know if it's just not there or it's not been trained 
or, you know, one place I do see it and it's noticeable, and I think other people have too, is like Chick-fil-A. I don't know what they're doing, but they have it. Their people are happy. They, you feel like you're, you're, you're welcome there. You feel like you're wanted. And it's a chain, so it can be done. And I guess it's just management of the corporate culture. But other places from the dry cleaner to, you know, where you get your car repaired to restaurants, you know, the customer service is, is really suffering in a lot of areas. And hopefully it, it does come back because it is a differentiator where you're going to spend your money, where you're going to give your business and patronize them. There's great studies. I mean, that, that for people that don't believe in the investment of that, because it's not immediately tangible. You can't, an accountant is going to say, you spent this much more on training and labor and, and incentive programs and bonuses and, and everything intrinsic and extrinsic that makes someone happy doing what they do. Where's the return on this? Mm-hmm. And, and you may not be able to post a return for five years. Um, when your some of your other costs come down as a result of people staying and consistently forming relationships with the customers that you serve, Chick Fil A, as you said, is a good example. And look at their growth in this country in the last few years. Publix is another great example. So there are plenty of case studies where they've put service to the forefront at the short term cost because to hire those right people to train them it takes time and it takes money. But look at the expansion, and we'll see if they're able to expand to sustain those expansions and keep the culture as they've gotten bigger. It's obviously much easier to contain and, and foster a culture the smaller it is as right. as it gets spread. It could be spread too thin. So we'll see. But but there is proven uh, success in businesses that, that that is a worthwhile investment. Awesome. So how can people get in touch with you? How can they follow you? Do you have any websites? Do you have uh, social media sites? Some, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, maybe they want to reach out, give you a job. Maybe there's some new opportunities that are doors are ready to open. Where can they find you? Uh, Instagram is the best bet. Um, at Chris, C-H-R-I-S underscore struck, S-T-R-U-C-K. Uh, pretty much 100% food and beverage and service and hospitality. Um, awesome. Actually, one one last thing that I wanted to, to note was for every person now as a professional, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, but I think it's even harder in hospitality where the expectation is our job is to make you feel like we really care. Uh, now that that soundbite could be taken and, and really ruin me as if we don't generally really care. Some Most of the time we do. Sometimes we have to fake it, but that is what makes us hospitality professionals and not just empathetic human beings that are members of your family. So where does the individual and the organization that employs that individual draw the line in the sand with political philosophy in terms of who they will serve and who they won't? I think that that is a really interesting question looking to the future because one argument could be made of you're in the hospitality business, your job is to provide hospitality and not to discriminate against anyone, regardless of their politics, regardless of how they look, how they behave. The other thinking is, you have to take a stand somewhere. If someone is vocally uh, opposing human rights things or contributing money uh, to propagate anti-human rights causes, and they're known for this, what human being, what entity run by humans for humans, uh, what is their worth if they don't take a stand and say, I'm sorry, you don't align with our beliefs. You have to sort of play God and it's uh, not an enviable position for owners and managers, but there's so much uncharted territory and hospitality. Um, I'll give you another quick example. When we were going to reopen Union Square Cafe, I was incredibly proud of this conversation coming to light. The service guide that was being put together was largely gleaned from organizations that use these service standards for their certification of sommeliers, right? So we sort of glean from here, glean from here, and we're trying to put together a a service manual Mm -hmm. for how wine was to be served. Now, traditionally in the French school, you would serve a taste to the person that ordered the wine. Then you would serve the guest of honor. Then you would serve the oldest 
woman all the way down to the youngest woman. I, it's been a few years. I may get this wrong. The youngest woman. Then you would serve the oldest man all the way down to the youngest man, and then you would return to the host. Mm-hmm. With these metrics, if you had a table of eight people, you could conceivably have to go clockwise around this table eight times before you were done with wine service. Explain to me the virtue of that. There isn't one. Beyond the fact that it would take far too long to serve a bottle of wine, and no one sitting at that table gives a damn that you've circled their table eight times to properly pour in the right order, <laughs> is the question of that puts that individual, me, the sommelier, in the position of not only assessing someone's age, which could get dangerous and offensive very quickly, but also someone's gender. And we're living in a world now where someone's face value or the way that they present themselves is not the gender with which they they associate. And how inhospitable for that person would it be if you decide that person's gender incorrectly just based on the way that they're presenting? So how do we, on one hand, be considerate of everyone that walks into the door the best of our ability. While on the other hand, and I had this conversation with someone that used to work at Union Square Cafe, who's now a general manager and, and wine director in, in Dallas. Yes, ma'am and no ma'am is still very much the expectation culturally there. And again, you have to make the decision whether it's a yes ma'am or a, a, a yes sir, based on the way someone looks, unless you know them personally. Mm. But to not include that verbiage is to not sound professional and it, you're not giving the hospitality that those people recognize. So imagine in the cross, one of the crossroads of the world, New York City, where you will have those Texas diners and you will have uh, transsexual diners and some transsexual diners from Texas, inevitably, you are put in a position that we as restaurateurs have never before had to, to be put in. Mm-hmm. We are serving a less homogenous dining room with a less homogenous staff. And with that comes both challenges and opportunities. And the best way to address them is is to identify the teachable moments and to have continuous dialogue with those groups to find out how do you want to be treated? How can we convey hospitality to you uh, instead of inflicting our idea of hospitality upon you? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's murky waters that we're all going to navigate to different degrees. But you can't talk about hospitality without talking about how you're going to make people feel when you serve them. And you can't consider how someone's going to feel until you try to put yourself in their shoes, which is very hard to do when, when they're different than you. Good point. So as we come to the end of our chat, before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice that you could share with the listeners? Any guidance that you could leave with them? Uh, there's a reason that we have two ears. There's a reason we have two hands. There, there are very few black and white, yes or no, cut and dry, binary answers to the questions that you'll be faced with as you get older. And instead of trying to pigeonhole yourself to be uh, someone that you think you want to be or need to be, or that someone has convinced you that you want to be, Look for more consensus. Look for the value in in blurring the lines and drawing from that information. So I'm not saying discount what your parents want you to do professionally. Take it under advisement, but also seek advisement from people that aren't related to you. Look for mentors and, and lean on them to help guide you because they have experience that you don't. And then be prepared when you reach a certain point to mentor others. That, that is the secret to the longevity of humanity is that we're all helping each other out with what we know, because you don't know everything, but you know a lot more than, than maybe people behind you. So keep an open mind, uh, keep your mouth full of, of food. Don't talk when your mouth is full. And it was great that you offered that if anyone wants to, you know, is coming into that area that maybe could reach out to you, that you could give them some guidance and that you're opening yourself as a, a mentor, at least someone to give advice. That's, that's really key. And it, it's, yeah, setting the example. I mean, I, beyond just people that I knew that 
that met me for beer or coffee when I moved here, I have cold called, not called, but cold emailed the the wine two past wine directors of 11 Madison Park, didn't know me from Adam and both have taken time out of their busy schedules to meet me for coffee. So if they can do it, if, if the wine directors of the number one restaurant in the world can find time uh, for someone that they don't know to help coach them, humble yourself, carve out the time and you never know. You may be out of work one day and that person that you took the time for now, uh, it's an investment into your future later. You never know how the cards are going to fall. Very good. Thank you. So that's just about all the time we have for this episode. And I want to first thank you, Chris, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your honesty. Thanks so much, Colin. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Take care. Bye now. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207-835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you. And that is to share the podcast with everyone you know. And to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next culinary school story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.